I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lady. It's Joanna. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm not bad. Welcome to show your work, everyone. We are here. We are showing it. We are working. Like if we say it loud enough, then we'll convince ourselves. We are. I would like to thank, um, if we're looking back at last week, I would like to thank Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, thank you. Um, Ben Affleck is good for gossip. Every year, every summer, he delivers. And I would like to extend my gratitude to Ben Affleck for keeping us interested, for giving us content. Um, you know, this guy can be relied on to fuck up. So thank you, Ben Affleck, for doing your gossip work. Do you think, you know, when you say, oh, every summer, I'm like, okay, does he hibernate in winter? Like, is he just less inclined to go out? Or is it that, you know, movies tend to be in higher production in summer because there's better weather, there's more daylight. So is it when he's shooting more that he feels freer and gets looser and things get troubled? What do you think makes Ben Affleck a summer fuck up? You know what? I think it's the exact opposite. I think he works actually not in the summer. Right. Which makes sense if he's not in, uh, you know, big outdoor movies, if it's interior uh, studio shots and that kind of thing. Yeah. So when he's on location, when he's on a soundstage somewhere in London doing a Batman thing and he's busy and he's focused, then generally the behavior is not gossip worthy. Lately, Ben Affleck has not been on a soundstage doing Batman things. He has not been promoting a movie. He may or may not be trying to write another movie. There's been some news that hit the script that he supposedly was working on for the standalone Batman that he's supposed to star in was tossed out, um, which in a way we can relate to Ben Affleck, you know, when you're just writing and you're working <laughs> on that writing project. Anyway, he's been idle in the sense of not on set and the trouble comes or the gossip comes. It's so interesting that you say that because that's what I was thinking. When you are shooting, chances are you are scheduled for a 12-hour day every day. Uh, you can go long, no question. But, you know, if your call time is 7 a.m., 6 a.m., uh, you're going at least 12 hours plus one hour for lunch. It's going to be a long, long day. Uh And actors and other film and TV people, I fully count myself in here, you get really efficient when you're really scheduled, when you have to use every minute of every day, right? You're like, okay, I have 14 minutes between this and the next setup. Yeah. How much can I get done on this other thing I'm supposed to be doing? Yeah. It's when the whole day stretches in front of you and all you have to do is work on this, make a dent in this thing with no hard deadline that you get absolutely nothing done. And you're like, I don't know, maybe the inspiration to get this done is a new indiscriminate love affair. Yeah. Well, and also it's, it's basically structure 
clearly what we're hypothesizing is that Ben Affleck, like children, needs structure. I, you know what, I can sit here and like talk about Ben Affleck and what he might be about, but I need structure just as badly. I don't have the money or the profile to embarrass myself the way he does, but I'm not going to be mad at him for wanting the structure. I get that. No, it is some insight into like what the effect of a working structure has on Ben Affleck and what the effect of not having that work structure has on him. And listen, of course, this is all hypothesis. He was able to quite ably write other movies and then go into production with them. But there is something here. I don't think it's accidental. I don't think it's accidental that in idle months that happen to be warm, Ben Affleck finds himself in in a gossip, in a fruitful gossip situation, which he claims he doesn't enjoy. Right. But I hear you say that. And what I take from it is writing is hard. Poor Ben Affleck. And now I'm in the position of having to sympathize with him because <laughs> writing is hard. And we can spend time on that at, uh, at length uh, at another time because there's all kinds of ways to talk about that. But I think today we are starting off with uh, something else being kind of hard. Yes. Yes. Like the life of an actor and the way that it can be hard, even if you are an Oscar winner who has all kinds of cred to her name. I was so excited when you sent this article about Charlize Theron, who we don't always get to talk about. No, we don't always get to talk about because she is one of those who's quite good at when I'm working and I need to be in front of you, I will be in front of you. And when I'm not, I'm going to, you know, recede into the background. Of course, she's working now because uh, Atomic Blonde is coming out quite soon. Uh, Atomic Blonde is being compared to John Wick, uh, but instead of John Wick, you have a woman, a badass, kick-ass woman who can barehand fight, who can throw people down the stairs. Uh, It's screened at South by Southwest. The reception was great. The trailers look great. So now we're going to see if there can be a box office and, you know, audience support behind this film. I'm excited to see it. I can't wait. Charlize Theron. um, It's also James McAvoy. Um, Yeah. And so this is why she's on the cover of Variety and she's going to be doing some press. Right. And so this is ostensibly the article about the female action star, right? There's a quote from Patty Jenkins that says uh, she's hopeful the age of the female action star has dawned, Uh, right? That this is the kind of thing that can be a mainstay, right? It's interesting because with all the sort of hype around Wonder Woman and so forth, Mad Max feels like a real precursor to Wonder Woman, to something like this. And so I guess as I read this, there are a few things that make me wonder if Charlize Theron is always hiding in plain sight. Like, is she doing a lot of thankless work for being the kind of woman who can carry an action movie? I love that you brought up Mad Max. I actually didn't think of this for this conversation, but as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, because it was a great movie, but the movie is called Mad Max. And yet, when it came out, she became the one we were talking about, Furiosa. Furiosa stole that movie. Stole the movie. Or, you know, was entitled to it the whole time, right? You don't have a movie without her, without Furiosa. That's right. And then layered on top of the fact that Furiosa stole the movie was the surprise element that, oh, hey, this Mad Max movie, the one that came out now, how many decades after the originals, 
It was a feminist it was a feminist film. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely a feminist film and it fits really well in the Charlize Theron kind of word I can never say, oeuvre. Um, <laughs> it fits in her kind of, of demo of the movies that she does. She doesn't ever play a woman who isn't powerful and strong in some way or another. She never plays a girl. Well, here's what's so interesting about that. Because first, we were going to talk about this article from the perspective of uh, Atomic Blonde and so forth. And then I found something else in this article to come out. So she says uh, about halfway through, she's talking about that part in the article where they talk about the training, right? And she says, uh, I'm coordinated because I'm a dancer. I definitely have movement memory, but I've never been a fighter, she says. I'm also really tall and a girl. That tends to make you look like your big bird. So there's a bit of admission there, I'm a girl, almost a reminder to us. I never think of Charlize Theron looking like Big Bird. I never think of her as anything less than intimidating. So there's a bit of recasting herself in our mind in that quote that I found really interesting. That is interesting. I didn't read it that way. Um, I promise you that when I read that part of the article, I thought immediately about you and about your um, your thesis, your opinion on what it is like to be tall. Yep. And you have talked many times before and written many times on Lainey Gossip about the fact that tall is not cute. In fact, I think that was the title of one of your posts. Yeah, that's right. And like, I'm going to go ahead and call that a manifesto. Tall is not cute. Tall is so many things. Tall is imposing. Tall is powerful. Tall is striking. Uh, tall can be glamorous, yeah, but it's not cute. It's not sweet. It tall does not need protecting. And Charlize Theron is taller than me. Charlize Theron yes. is five eleven. I, I can confirm that. I've Th stood next to both of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'm glad that there's a constant height comparison going in our heads. And you, in case there's anybody who doesn't know, are not tall. I'm like the opposite of tall. You are actively short. Right. In which, but also it's a fact that always surprises me. Like <laughs> intellectually, I know that I'm short, but I never feel short. Like the way I picture myself is I walk around thinking I'm five, six. Well, and that's what's so <laughs> funny to me is because it's only you short girls who do that. <laughs> if Sasha were here, uh, Sasha is, I'm going to out her, also short. And Sasha would stand here and be like, no, bitch, I'm tall. I'm tall. I'm like average. I'm totally whatever you do. No, no, I'm average. Um, that was less profane than a Sasha impression should be, but otherwise it's not bad. Yeah. There would be more cunty um, fucks in there. That's right. What the shit is yeah. my favorite thing that Sasha has ever said. Yeah. Um, but yeah, tall people know they're tall. There's a real conscious knowing that we are tall and we can't be untall. We can't be unimposing in person, however much we would like to fold ourselves in. Right. And you short people are doing the opposite. Which is I, I, like being taller than we are. Or pretending to be taking taller up, than you Trying are. to take up more space than we do. I'm Look, I'm never going to be mad about a woman taking up more space and all that kind of thing, but the the platform shoes that are seven inches tall and those kind of things are 
encouraging delusion. So do you think Charlize Theron is trying to be cute? I don't think she's trying to be cute per se, but I think everything that she says in this article, and of course she can't have control of which quotes are chosen, but that tells me that she's everything she says in this article is extremely strategic. Knowing that she never gets the cute role, knowing that she is a woman who, if we believe this, is positioning herself as the next action star, you know, it's giving, showing us a little bit about how hard she had to work to get to the place where she is this effortless Amazon, which is a word I held off on using until now, right? Yeah. There's another quote, ironically, that reminded me of you. She talks early on about this dental emergency that she had. She was fighting so hard that she cracked two teeth. That's hardcore, yes? Yes. Yeah, it's hugely hardcore. But what's so amazing and strategic is the way she talks about it. She tells you, she doesn't just sort of put up and shut up. She tells you about how hard she's working. So the quote is, uh, having to cut one of the teeth out and root canals, Theron says, was tough. You want to be in your best fighting shape, and it's hard. I had the removal, and I had to put a donor bone in there to heal until I came back, and I had another surgery to put a metal screw in there. Like, translation, I am hardcore. I'm working so hard. I am putting in all of the effort to make this movie as good as it can be. And that's something that you've pointed out, that you have to talk about your work, to show your work. That's what she's yeah. doing here, right? is talking about, look how hardcore I am, look how hard I worked to make this movie for you. But what I like about this too is that, you know, typically what we hear, those broken bones stories, we hear those all the time. We hear them from actors. I did this action movie, uh, whoever action movie star did a stunt where he had to jump on a truck and fractured this and went that, but then, you know, the medic came to set and five minutes later they put the temporary cast on and he was right back at work. Right, 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 right. Right? Yes. And here's Charlize Theron and she's the one, not an actor, but she's the one saying, I had to get a root canal, my teeth got knocked out and this is what happened to me. And is that refreshing? Because I find it annoying when dudes do it. Why do you find it annoying? I find it annoying, for instance, what comes to mind is Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Well, yes. The Revenant. He was so cold. And uh, this is what happened to him. And he, he, the socks were all wet. And he was spitting. And his, his snot was freezing. And he just did it in service for the character and this and that and the other. You took the words right out of my mouth because what I was going to say was, if this was anybody else and we read this article, you would say it was early campaigning. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So is it early campaigning? And in the spirit of showing one's work, is that fine? Because it's Charlize Theron. I don't necessarily think that this is going to be eligible for a whole bunch of awards, but it's campaigning for look what kind of a good movie this is going to be. I wonder if in defense of me, if I'm being hypocritical that like, it do I don't mind it at all coming from Charlize and I mind it so much coming from Leonardo DiCaprio is part of showing your work is she's a producer on this film. I mean, okay. So she had said that um, 
This is a movie that they've been working on. They acquired it many years ago. She's part of that team. I don't know that she's doing this just for an award. What she's doing it is for the overall success of the movie, both as an actor and as a creative, like creative on the movie, plus a financial investor. That's okay. That's fine. But either way, if the financial investor and producer and star are three different people, then the financial investor and the producer say to the star, hey, could you maybe like pump this up and promo is part of your job and whatnot. All this is, is the producer and the financial investor saying that to the actor while all three of them are in the shower that morning. Like it's the same thing, right? It's still promoting the movie. And it's still, I guess the thing that seems different is that for somebody like a DiCaprio, for somebody who we've seen in this situation so many times, it feels less genuine because it is campaigning because we've seen it six or seven times. This is how this one was so hard for me. This is how this one made me think of, you know, how my heart broke when Kate Winslet had a miscarriage in Revolutionary Road, etc. This feels new from her, which is why it feels okay, give or take 30 pounds to play Eileen Wernos. To go back, though, to the girl who isn't sweet and who breaks her teeth or needs a root canal, did you ever see... Um, did you ever see there's a movie with Charlize and Keanu Reeves called Sweet November? <laughs> I know of it. Okay. I think it's a death movie, right? Right. It's one of those you two people fall in love and one dies or one is dying, like that trope, right? Sure. And she plays the dyer. Or is that, <laughs> is that a word? No, it's definitely not. <laughs> she she's the one who's sick and dies. So you get all the cliche scenes like um, suddenly they've had a great day and they get home and she faints. Or coughs blood, right? That's yeah, right. It's uh, somebody would, uh, I've heard them called sick flicks. Right. And so she is um, in the movie. It's a romantic notebook style. It's supposed to make you cry and love love and cherish love and cherish the moment. And it's terrible. Like, it's not even terrible in the way where I want to go back and watch it. I was going to say, is it bad enough to elicit how terrible it could be? Listen, Keanu Reeves makes some terrible movies. He's awesome. It's almost his MO. Yeah, like that. And some of his terrible movies are eminently watchable. Like, he did a movie also with Sandra Bullock called The Lake House. And that's the movie where people use that. Um, gif over and over again where he sneezes and he can't movie act to sneeze. It's so awful. <laughs> We're going to put this up to go with the podcast, by the way. Um, it's so awful. And I find that movie all the time watchable. Number one for that scene, but number two for some of the terrible, terrible acting that he does in it. it it's so bad, it then bounces off and becomes good again. Right. Um, have you Have you pulled up the clip yet? Oh, yeah. I'm here. Okay. I will pause so that you can watch this sneeze. Do it with sound. (laughs) Let me just narrate what's happening here. Keanu Reeves is confused for a long period of time. (laughs) Then there's a snowstorm. 
Then he shouts like somebody has killed his teddy bear. And then, oh, it's a sneeze. Okay, that's what that is. Got it. But see, that's why that movie is in its own way totally awesome. Right. It's magical. It's magical. And in Sweet November, there there's no magic like that in right. Sweet November. Hey, if you're listening and you find things to defend in Sweet November, please email us. We love those emails and we will read them. And so what I'm saying is to get back to Charlize, there's that movie, it didn't work on so many levels. Keanu, the acting, the story, whatever. But I remember watching it and I think I watched it in the theater. I remember watching it and being like, I don't believe her. You don't believe she's dying? Right. Because she's so, what, strong, full of life? I don't believe her dying character. I don't believe that this 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 sweet November girl, that they had this moment um, and that this is who she was. You feel, you're dangerously close to saying you don't think she was a good actor in that movie. I don't. Interesting. What do you think changed? Or are we talking around the fact that maybe... What are we talking around? I I don't know what we're talking around, but I will say that that movie was many years ago, and you have to sort of figure out where you are, right? Like, I she's trying to be cute in this quote where she's like, I have a dancer's body or a dancer background, and I know muscle memory, but I don't fight, and I get that, and you can say that to me in relation to applying yourself to a movie in which you aren't sweet Novembering it, you are atomic blonding it. But I don't want to see Charlize in that role. It's okay. I understand. So in short, Charlize Theron, you feel, was floundering in rom-coms or other early roles before she sort of found herself in the hardcore. Yes? Like Charlize Theron is the female action star we always needed but didn't have until now. I think so. I think even in she, listen, she too has been in terrible movies. One of those terrible movies was with Ben Affleck. It's called Reindeer Games. Reindeer. Right. But again, to your point, that's a rom-com and like that's not where we need to see her maybe. No. Just as we don't need to see uh I, I don't know. You know, you don't need to see Maya Rudolph in the sort of introspective mumblecore dramas she sometimes finds herself in. Uh, Charlize Theron has found her groove here. And it's exciting to kind of go, okay, now that you know where you are, let's see you lean in. And let me be clear, it doesn't mean that she doesn't have multiple grooves. I'm not saying, and I don't think you are either, that Charlize Theron should just do action. Of course not. I mean, action was not a monster. So uh, Charlize Theron is actually really good in comedy, dark comedy. She's funny. Uh, young adult is, to me, underrated. Oh, yeah, young adult. But Charlize Theron, that's because Charlize Theron is dry as a bone. That's like, right. Here's what's so interesting about her is this woman, and I'm really glad that you brought up young adult because it often does get forgotten. And when it is talked about, it's often talked about as a Diablo Cody film in a way that is unfairly derisive, but Charlize Theron is no bullshit. She is so incapable in interviews, in maybe in movies, of faking that she cares about things that are stupid. 
Uh, and that's a really interesting quality in an actor who's supposed to be able to go to lots of places, right? Instead, she seems to save it all up for proving that things that are bullshit need not be discussed, need not be entertained, right? Yep. So, like I said, I think she can do the comedy. In fact, I think she can do it quite well. The dry wit, all of that. I think she can do the heavy dialogue kind of movies that require a quick kind of humor that might be veering towards the inappropriate. She's very good at that. She was amazing in Arrested Development. Yep. Oh my God, she was amazing in Arrested Development. But I just don't want to see her. I think I think I don't want to see her in The Sweet Novembers. I mean… And is that okay? Of course it's okay. I don't think she's racing to get there either. Here's one other thing that's really interesting about the way that she's talking about this role and about the way that she's talking about, as you pointed out, being a producer, being somebody who's involved. This is what it sounds like when a woman is deeply involved in production. She she says, uh, a lot of times studios or producers are not comfortable with seeing a woman with bruises, she said. We wanted to really pay attention to that authenticity. After a fight in the third act, she trades her vanity for a swollen face and a sealed shut eye. We had early makeup tests where she had no whites in her eyes, Kono says. That's how far they wanted to go. This is interesting to me, not because of the, oh, go ugly for Oscar trope, but because Charlize Theron is actively involved in counteracting what studios or producers might say they want. That she's like, I don't give a shit if you don't like it, to paraphrase Amy Poehler in Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. We don't really care if you don't want to see a woman look like that. This is how this woman looks after this kind of fight. That's really exciting and refreshing. It is really, really exciting and refreshing. And I think that the evolution of Charlize Theron to get there has been something that she's done quietly. Um, I don't know that she's put it on the table um, and shown her work until she's explained it to us now in this article, which is why I I, I sent it to you and I was like, we got to do this because how many quotes have we pulled out right now that really fit the purpose of this podcast? One of those and all these discussions about her past choices and her past roles, um, the Sweet Novembers and those not working out, and the Reindeer Games and that not working out, and finding the grooves that do work, is that she's now talking about what it took to realize what grooves work and what don't, and her mistakes. My favorite quote in this piece is when she talks about working on the female action movie and that this actually isn't her first time. Eon Flux was her first time. Whoa. Yeah, right. And so she says here that, um, here's, here's, the, uh, here's the quote. I got offered a lot of stuff in action movies that was either the girl behind the computer or the wife, Charlize says. Charlize says, at a peak in her post-monster career in 2005, she tried to launch a strong female hero only to be savaged by terrible reviews. Now, here's what she says about those terrible reviews and the fact that Eon Flux bombed. Quote, When Eon Flux came to me, I thought that could be something. I was never completely sold on the entire concept, but I loved the director, so I threw myself into that with the belief that she's a great filmmaker. And then we fucked it all up, she says with a laugh. 
I just don't think we really knew how to execute it. And it's disappointing, but it happens. I've been in this business long enough to know that you cannot get it right every time. I might have gotten this right because of that. And the reason I sent this to you is because many weeks ago, you actually said that not every script is going to land. Not every show is going to get picked up. Not every pilot is going to go forward. Like, in the business, your failures happen. Everybody fails. Well, and in fact, it's structured that way. We've talked about this with television, but it's true in film as well. Companies order many, many more scripts than they will ever make. They test and audition for films that never actually get released. That's actually how the business is structured, on things that are never going to get there. And it all comes back to, again, um, the quote that you brought to me and that I have been bringing to everyone who will listen, and I just brought it up recently in a talk that I did a few days ago. It was uh, the Women's Executive Network. It's an organization in Canada that uh, reaches out and engages women um, on work, work pe- workplace best practices. Every year they release a list of 100 most powerful women. And so I went to speak at the event, and someone asked me, who was a writer, she said, you know, can you give me any advice on writing? I'm having a difficult time. I feel blocked. Mm. And this was when, again, I was able to pull out that quote, that adage that I live by now that you gave to me, which is, you can't fix nothing. Right. That you kind of just have to puke it out and it's going to be shit, but at least shit you can fix. You can't fix a a blank page. There's nothing there to fix. You can fix anything, but you can't fix nothing. Shout out to York, who is an early mentor of mine who taught me that in the first place. But yeah, I don't think he knew how profound it was at the time that you can fix anything and then you can fix the thing that you fixed and you can keep going and keep going until it's great. And that's how work is done. That's what actually work is. It's not brilliance spouting from your face and your hands and your brain all the time. And this is what's so interesting, I think, to your point about her quote, is that she acknowledges that the disaster, the failure that is Eon Flux is, sure, a disaster, a failure, a flop, and a building block without which she can't get to where she is now. Right. And, you know, another thing that's interesting about this is she won the Oscar, right? So she wins the Oscar, and then she goes into Eon Flux, and it sucks. Um... So these are the, I don't know, to sound cliche, these are the peaks and valleys, which goes back to something that you and I have been really exploring over the last couple of years as well. And it's that the desire, I mean, my characterization of it is preciousness, where sometimes we become so precious with our work that we expect great every time. And we've forgotten that good is also good. Good is very good. Yeah. And I think uh, many people have said, but uh, Jerry Seinfeld often says, like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Don't let waiting around and being precious and tinkering with it to be perfect be the enemy of something that is good. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to remember. So sucking is not okay at the time, but sucking can be something useful It's also not avoidable. You cannot get through, you know how they say like you cannot get out of this life alive? You cannot get through work without sucking. 
you need to suck so that later on when you don't suck, you know the difference. Exactly. And that's what she's saying here with Eon Flux. Like she knows why Eon Flux sucked and this is why Atomic Blonde is not going to suck. And to your point about not being the enemy of good. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. That's right. She also in this article talks about being a producer and the things that she's produced lately and some of them have been canceled. Charlize uh, Theron produced Girlboss. Sure. The Netflix show that ran this year that didn't go anywhere. Well, let's be real here. It produced a season. It was a season of television that exists based on an existing property. And that's a season of television that exists. I want to not be defensive, but I don't want to look on an achievement of, you know, a season of TV as, oh, well, that was, you know, it didn't go anywhere. It was one and done, which is not what you want. But sometimes the work is just the work, right? Sometimes, as she points out, as you point out, not everything is a hit. So yeah, it wasn't a hit. But it's not a failure because you get something from it, you work some way through it, you learn something that then you get to deploy somewhere else. Maybe. We hope. What do you think of what she said about Tom Hanks? Well, what she says about Tom Hanks is that he told her many, many wonderful things and then wrote her a little note that said, promise me you'll never do television. And I bet he's eating his words, she says. My question to you, I mean, do I think that he probably is eating his words or like that's weird? Yeah, sure. Here's my question to you. Why do you think she said that? Because it doesn't make him look that good. It doesn't make him look that good. And I'm not sure it's entirely accurate anymore because Tom Hanks, of course, has done TV, or at least he's produced TV. Isn't Band of Brothers considered TV? I guess. Band of Brothers. It's is HBO, a, right? It's HBO, but that was a, a limited miniseries is okay. not what TV meant back then. That right. was still considered to be okay. And, of course, HBO's tagline, it's not TV, it's HBO, Right, was an escape route for that back in the day. Got it. But yeah, bringing it up, and again, you don't know in an interview what what's going to make it into print, but bringing it up it makes Tom Hanks look bad in a funny way because everybody, Tom Hanks is not psychic. Nobody knew that TV then was going to be what it is now. So is that strategic? Is You think it's a thing? I, I just think it's really interesting. Like, she, first of all, Charlize Theron um, is obviously at a point in her career where she can speak quite candidly and not fear repercussion. So, and Tom Hanks is one of the most influential and powerful. And so this is not an, this is not an entry-level actress, for example, cutting down one of the bigs. Uh, so there is some protection there for her in the sense of, I think that there's a net underneath her. Uh, however, it was really interesting to pick that guy, one of the Academy's favorites, one of America's favorites, uh, the sort of golden boy. People don't usually go for Tom Hanks. Well, if I'm nitpicking, and I am not trying to go for Tom Hanks. Hello, Mr. Hanks, sir. How are you? <laughs> if I'm nitpicking, promise me you'll never do television is a bit paternal. Promise me. 
Do it for me. I'm the one who's asking you. Like, why should she do anything for him? This comes out of a quote where she was asking him to sign her script. So it's implied that she's asking for advice. But still, do it for me is a little bit of a, it's a bit paternal and a bit sexist in a way that has not aged well. What I like most about her bringing it up, though, is that that's not, if that's the reason she brought that up, it's not an isolated incident. Because my favorite quote in the whole article, which is not insubstantial, as you say, is filled with many, is about the following paragraph. Uh, For a love interest, Lorraine, the character that she plays, is too suave to be impressed by the male colleague played by James McAvoy. Instead, she has sex with another female spy, Sophia Butella, without stopping to explain her bisexuality. And here's the quote from Charlize Theron that I really like. It's a little bit long. I just loved it, Theron says about the idea, for so many reasons. My frustration with how that community is represented in cinema, or lack thereof. And also, it just made perfect sense. It just suited her. It felt like there was a way through that relationship, and the fact that if it was a same-sex relationship... To show a woman not having to fall in love, which is one of those female tropes. It's a woman. She better fall in love. Otherwise, she's a whore. Charlize Theron, who, as you say, has not necessarily been showing all her work all this time, has been paying attention. She's been watching. And all of the quotes here imply that she is finally ready to let loose everything that she's been watching and paying attention to all this time. And maybe that is why the Tom Hanks quote comes up. Because for all of his popularity, Tom Hanks kind of represents an era of Hollywood and an era of a style of work that's gotten a little bit old. Uh, We are moving past that Tom Hanks style of movie making, style of movie star, those values, you know, I'm not talking about moral values. I'm talking about processes of movie making, those kind of values. And she's saying, okay, old guy, your advice didn't really work out for me, but thanks. You keep going along the old conservative way, the tried, true and tradition, but there's a new wave coming and I'm on it. That is what this whole article reads as and what we assume if she is campaigning, if she's doing the work for her film, what the film seems like it will promise. It is a brand new day. We have a brand new way of looking at what women look like in action films, a brand new way of expressing a woman's sexuality, a brand new way to take on all of the things that maybe have been lacking before up to and including uh, budgets and many other things she discusses here. And She's doing a really good job of sending us her message. This is a brand new day. It's now that I think about it and we've talked this through, it becomes even more brilliant that she used him as the juxtaposition and the comparison. Because who can find fault with Tom Hanks? That's right. But as you say, he's just a, he's just a, a very nice man from another time. I'm it. impressed. And speaking of Charlize paying attention, of course, one of the things that she can't not pay attention to is the ongoing discussion of equal pay and the gender pay gap in Hollywood. Oh, look at you with the segue. Thank you. So in this article, it, it 
so in this article in Variety about Charlize Theron, it's mentioned a few times that she negotiated for equal pay with Chris Hemsworth on the Huntsman movie. Um, she speaks a few times about her word is, I am ashamed to be in an industry where women aren't valued. Um, and we had the conversation last week about Daniel Day Kim and Grace Park. Um, people are still talking about that, about certain communities, certain kinds of actors who don't get paid what they're worth. And then Vulture this week um, published an article, um, and it was an article that uh, that featured several of their contributors, Kevin Lincoln, uh, Joseph Adalian, Kyle Buchanan, Jen Cheney, and Marina uh, Maria Elena Fernandez. And the title is, Should Actors' Contract Negotiations Be Public Like Athletes? So the premise here is that in professional sports, when a player re-signs with a team or signs with a team, everybody knows the length of the contract and how much is and how much it's worth. You being in Toronto would have followed this quite closely with the Blue Jays, and last year it was Edwin and Carnacion and Jose Bautista. So everybody knows what everybody else is getting paid. Right. You you cut me off. Uh, when I was about to moan about uh, <laughs> David Price and the money he was offered to be lured away elsewhere. There you go. Et cetera. And the resulting uh, moaning and heart-rending of garments. So That's forth. right. And this has Hollywood and real-world connections because in Hollywood, it doesn't work necessarily like that where, you know, the news reports come out and say, uh, Jennifer Lawrence has signed a three-picture deal with Warner Brothers worth blah, 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 blah. Like, it's not confirmed. It's always reportedly or rumor has it or on the ground we're hearing this. Um, and in the real world, in the private sector at least, um, salaries are not published. And there has been um, there has been a movement to suggest whether or not published salaries across all industries, not just in Hollywood, would benefit women. Right. You know, and on the one hand, of course it would. You cannot deny, and I think certain organizations, certain places where people work have bans, right? So you know uh, if you have a job and your job is in category F, that you are either at the top, middle, or bottom of the band. You can tell. You know where you should be, and when you have a new job, it's a new category. So, of course, transparency helps everybody. One of the things they bring up in this article that was my first thought is that it's much harder to quantify the job that an actor does, right? If I am, you know, if I'm I'm negotiating Steph Curry's contract, I'm sure there's a formula, right? If he is the number one player, then everybody else is a percentage or a fraction of what he does and what he gets according to their shots, their stats for the year, their this, their that, Right? It's much, much harder to parse whether or not Brie <laughs> Larson is more worthy than Emma Watson of a given something, a given thing. Correct? Correct. I mean, what you're saying here is there are no hard and fast statistics in performing and in real life performance on the job the way there is in sport. So if you're taking Steph Curry, for example, or any player – if you take the baseball example, you can say this player averaged this and this many home runs and on-base percentage and RBIs and all of that. And then you take into consideration the age, 
I mean, you know, is he in the middle of his career? Is he peaking? Whatever. In acting and in finance or in the legal industry, there are no set, there's no, not a graph that you can point to. Well, no. What we have are noted high watermarks, right? Uh, I remember when Julia Roberts first got $20 million. I want to say it was for Runaway Bride, but I don't know if that is true. We will find out. The first time she got $20 million, she was the first actress ever to be paid $20 million. And so now that's what she's worth. That's her sticker price. These days we hear a lot more of, oh, so-and-so took a pay cut to make this movie or so-and-so took a pay cut for that. I raise an eyebrow at this because usually what they say is, oh, they took a pay cut against the back end, which means against the profits of the movie. That's not a pay cut. That's just a difference in when you're being paid, first of all. But, you know, those are the high watermarks that only a few people reach. And there hasn't been somebody like a Julia Roberts in a very, very long time. You think there is? Come fight me. So that's a note about why the stat model doesn't necessarily work, right? Yeah. It it got me thinking, though, about um, new ways and new business. Mm-hmm. As we were talking about in the previous discussion about Charlize Theron and it being a new world. And I wonder whether or not, if this is going to be something that is considered in Hollywood, um, I wonder whether or not the stats that you have in sport, the equivalent of that eventually in Hollywood and in show business and in marketing might be social media. I was thinking that in the sense that definitely there are factions of marketing people who believe that the number of Instagram followers that you have, the number of Twitter followers or YouTube subscribers or et cetera, is the most important metric of success. There are many people who believe, for example, in the modeling industry, that certain models have risen as quickly as they have. And Naomi Campbell was quite vocal about this, and then she got slapped down. You know, her point in a very, uh, in a very overview brief way was, back in my day, we had to prove ourselves to the designers, we had to go to go-sees, we had to walk a certain amount of shows, and now supermodels become, quote, supermodels by how many Instagram followers they attract. And this is also being applied, we're hearing, too, to, for example, the music industry, um, where artists are being signed based on their social media popularity because that is a built-in way. If they get a record deal, it's a built-in way for the record company to be able to go and market market the album or market the song. Right. And, you know, it's a problem. And we know why it's a problem. Uh, because, of course, social media is not an indicator of who you are or how you're going to perform. Uh, specifically, as an actor, as a model, I would guess when I think of Naomi Campbell or the other supermodels of her day, I don't think so much about print work as I do about the runway, in which there is a level of performance that you can't necessarily get in Instagram. Fair enough? Fair. But most importantly, I worry about salary transparency in uh, film and television and the related industries of modeling and, and music and so forth, because here's the thing about athletes. They're all men. 
as soon as we start talking about women and what they are worth and debating who is worth more or less, first of all, obviously, there's the inherent, like, are we judging this woman on her face? Yes, of course we are. Are we judging her on the new boobs she bought more, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's all kind of the dirty cost of doing business in this business. But one of the weirdest things about our business that I know everybody knows but maybe doesn't think about is that all negotiations are done through intermediaries, right? Which is to say, if I am, oh, I don't know, Alison Brie getting ready for the second season of Glow on Netflix, and Netflix says, we're going to pay you this much because the show was this successful, and she says, no, no, I want more. This is, of course, not an actual conversation that is happening. Their legal department talks with their finance department, and a representative takes that offer to Alison Bree's team, who then parse it back down to her, and it's a whole series of conversations. In short, she doesn't get to be in the room. She doesn't not get to present her case in this impassioned way. I worry... Perhaps I'm putting too much of myself in this conversation, but I worry that then we're going to devalue these women and their performances by saying, well, you know, it's not going to be Alison Brie was paid so much for this or that, or Julia Roberts was paid so much, but Alison Brie's representative was able to get her this or that, so on and so forth. Uh, the, the agents are going to become celebrities. The agents will have huge social media followings. You're talking about the credit. Who with the cre- who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? Yeah. Right? Like in the industries that you're talking about, if there are people in the real world who are negotiating for more money, a better title, uh, you know, a share of the profits or or shares in the business, most people have to go in and advocate for themselves. And the entertainment and sports industries have always been different. That's all, there's always been sort of intermediaries there, and there's many reasons for that. But I worry that if those negotiations become public in the same way that sports negotiations are, all of a sudden it doesn't become about, oh, look how much she is worth, but oh, look how much he was able to get for her. Which means he's good at his job. Exactly. Right. And she's lucky. I have a story I want to tell you. I've been saving to tell you to get your reaction live about okay, a friend of okay. mine. And so she's a side hustle. So she goes in a couple times a week to this other company mm-hmm. that she's not full-time employed with. Okay. And uh, she does a little bit of contract work for them. It's copy editing. Okay. So and she goes and copy edits at what? Company B. Yeah, exactly. Right. So she copy edits at Company B and there's a guy who works full-time at Company B yeah. who has a different position Okay. But also on this particular project has been helping out. He's helping out our friend? He's helping out on that same project, sure. the copy okay. editing side. Yeah. And so he puts in his regular, let's say, 30 hours a week, but then he also puts in an extra 15 or whatever on this, on this uh, copywriting project. Right. But he's not getting paid anything. Okay. So he asks her. He says hey, I, uh, I'm kind of, you know, I'm doing this on top of my regular job. So is she, by the way, just that she just works at a different company. Right. She spends her days at company A. That's right. Right. And so he's like, I, I, so I'm, I kind of want to go in and ask them to compensate me for the extra work I'm doing on this copy editing project. 
Fair enough. So I, I Maybe. Just, to, just to give me an idea of what I should ask for, can you tell me how much you make? Oh, interesting. So she told him. Mm-hmm. She's like, uh, yeah, I, I get $500 a week. Right. He went in and got $750. And, or asked for $750 and got it. Right. And then came back and told her. I was going to say, which we know because he came back to her. We know this because he said, oh, hey, thanks for telling me about $500. Uh, I got $750. And she says he didn't say it in like, a ha-ha way, that it wasn't smug and it wasn't like, I took advantage of you and look what I did, I stepped on you. Mostly when she was communicating this example to me, she was like, oh, I was just like, mm, you know, like for herself. She was like, now, like, it puts her in a position of, what, what's my move going to be? Right. Because now she knows she's making 33% less for doing the same job. So what would you do? You know what I would do? If I were calm and rational, which is not necessarily how I would be right after I heard that, uh, I think what I would do is go in and tell my bosses that, you know, I'd had a change in my schedule at company A, uh, that I wouldn't be able to swing things at company B. I know how much they need me. Uh, but it's not, it's not going to work out right now. Uh, Unless, of course, we can work out some salary compensation that's going to make up for the greater trouble that I'm incurring at at company A, I think. Because I think what would be a mistake is to make it about the guy. He went in and negotiated and got what he could get, whether or not he should have been happy with what she had. Who knows what he was offered? Who knows what happened? But it's not his fault that she's not making seven fifty. It's the boss's fault. So I would try to make it their problem. I hope. To go back to the salary transparency thing, though, on paper, it looks good, right? But as we all know, things on paper get exploited and people look at those loopholes and they take advantage of certain loopholes. And I just, I just worry that If we put forward a system, and it's not like I'm against it. This is one of those issues that is so big and so complicated. I don't know if there's the right answer. I've done a lot of reading on this lately, and I actually, I'm on the fence about it because I have, I've, I've heard about all the pluses that can arise. And I've also heard about some of the negatives. And one of the big negatives is if you just lay out a program like this with salary transparency across the board in any industry, and you don't fix systemically, institutionally, what's wrong with equality, the barriers that the barriers that are in front of women, people of color, disabled, all those marginalized groups that don't get the benefits and the privileges and the opportunities that other people do, if you don't fix that, then inevitably will those people who are already advantaged in the first place look at the loopholes of pay transparency and and benefit from them more than other people have in the past, which is the way that the status quo has always been maintained. Yes? Yeah. You know, by and large, the sentiment about inequality is that you have to go and take what you're worth, demand it, and require it and achieve it because nobody is going to give it to you. Nobody is going to look at a 
say, an inequality in salary that is now published and public and go, oh, that's too bad. Would you like some more money? That is not, it's never going to happen. People will, there are all kinds of reasons, as you say, where there won't be able to be a boost there. Uh, And that was, interestingly, the most, by far the most prevalent pushback that I heard about the situation with Grace Park and Daniel Day Kim on Hawaii Five-0 that people said, as we discussed over and over, oh, but Duanna, they're not the leads. They are actively numbers three and four on that show. And it's like, yeah, okay. On what show are they the leads? On what show are two people of color the leads and able to demand the money that they deserve? Or who's going to give them a show? Who's going to pay them what they're worth because, as we discussed, they're keeping Hawaii Five-0 afloat? If the answer is not this show, then why stick around being underpaid? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And now on to the Gallagher portion of the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? I am referring to the, the amusement we took from... Um, the Gallagher's performance, uh, the pettiness that we saw at One Love Manchester. I can never remember which one, so that's why I call it the Gallagher. I'm actually so shocked at you. For somebody who has such a deep, deep knowledge of all pop culture, but especially 90s pop culture, I don't know why you have a Gallagher blind spot. You know how you can't tell Britney's sons apart and you never have been able to? Yeah. Okay, I, I honestly, these two look exactly the same. They behave in exactly the same prickish way. They sound the same. They were in the same band. Like, I don't know who's who. Uh, to clarify, at One Love Manchester, a concert which I know we don't have to remind anybody was supposed to be about healing from a really, really tragic <laughs> event and rebuild. <laughs> and Liam Gallagher, uh, iconic... Uh, iconically from Manchester, <laughs> appears and proceeds to call out his brother Noel uh, for failing to show up. So basically unearths a 20-year-old beef in front of, like, may we also remind ourselves that this was headlined, engineered, and organized by Ariana Grande, that her fans are between the ages of Eight and 28, <laughs> nobody knows who Liam Gallagher is. <laughs> but he decided to resurrect this age-old beef anyway. Anyway, so I have now just associated all kinds of petty outbursts and especially male sort of uh, tirades with Gallagher's. And you sent me this um, article, or you sent me this news item this week, and it was about Frank Darabont, who was once the showrunner for The Walking Dead, many seasons ago, I think. And his emails 
have been released because there's some sort of lawsuit going on. We don't need to go into why, but his emails have been released by AMC. Um, and okay, and these emails are <laughs> Gallagher. They are so, I mean, we're going to attach it to this post and you are going to enjoy reading these emails because of course, Frank Darabont is a writer. So his use of language and profanity is actually quite clever. Um, so that's part of it. But what he's directing his profanity and his clever use of it to are the people he used to work with. Okay. So, you know, let's break this down a little bit. So Frank Darabont uh, had three Oscar nominations before The Walking Dead happened. Uh, we got a really interesting email uh, this week from Jillian, uh, or maybe Gillian. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently about the hard G in Gillian Jacobs, star right. of Love and Community. And that's a hard one to get around, but I know that it is a thing, the hard G in either Jillian uh, or Gillian. So, you know, forgive us if you're Gillian. How are you? Anyway, she asked, I remember that a number of years ago there was a writer's strike. And I don't know enough about TV to know if this is a dumb question, but, spoiler, not a dumb question. Usually when there's a big change in an area, any area, people can see the effects a bit later. Immediate changes are not the norm. How does the outcome of that strike affect what we are now able to enjoy? Does it? Who else do we have to thank for peak TV? How does this work? Great question. Love this question. Not a stupid question. At all. So what she's saying is there was a writer's strike. So there was a writer's strike in 2008. It was a long one. There were many, many shows that ground to a halt. Man, it's almost 10 years, hey? Yeah. Um, there were shows that... Uh, kind of failed to launch and, but maybe would have been okay or had a chance to grow. But after the writer's strike, there was no point in trying to sink money in re-upping, trying to re-find an audience. Shows that had been going okay were retooled and, you know, people didn't miss the things that were happening. But most importantly, what all of the writers did during the writer strike because they could not make any money was create new shows, create new ideas. And it is not accidental that this question comes up uh, as we talk about The Walking Dead, which premiered uh, on AMC relatively shortly after the writer's strike was ratified. Uh, I'm not going to talk about boring contract stuff, but basically writers can't write anything under contract uh, while while the writer's strike is going on. So, you know, it was... Uh, the Walking Dead, I believe, began in 2010. Uh, so it was, uh, it was very shortly after the writer's strike. So The Walking Dead was kind of the preamble to a lot of now what we refer to as peak TV, different kinds of shows that we had been seeing. Uh, the Walking Dead, and I think of The Leftovers, I think of The Affair, uh, shows that were unusual in tone, that were definitely not about cops or lawyers, that were murkier, differenter, more creative. And because they're more different and creative, more different, by the way, is excellent English, <laughs> uh, Fargo often also comes to mind as something really, really unique in its style and, and tone. 
they are they belong to auteurs, right? They belong to these creators. You fall like yeah, yeah. So now we get back to Frank Darabont, who had never worked in TV before, but who created this really compelling, nuanced, if you can say that, uh, zombie show that became the hugest, most massive hit AMC had seen. It is like, forget your Mad Men, which launched the channel. Walking Dead, like, covered the channel in all of the money, right? We yes. we know this to be true. So, basically, what do you know about this? If there's been a terrible writer's strike, there's been so little money, and then there's all this new stuff coming through, and somebody comes in and makes it rain, that person is what? Like a king. A king. king maker, yeah. A king, essential, can do no wrong, right? Right. Now, now think about what this person must have had to do in order to be fired from the show he created. <laughs> well, now we come to these emails. And now we come to these emails. I um, Do you have a favorite passage? I, I have many favorite passages. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I think I'm most interested in starting chronologically. Uh, here is an email from... Here's an email from July 21st, 2010. Uh, and this is really amazing. You've heard me talk about the writer's room enough that you know what it is, so I'm not going to give too much preamble here. Stand by. <laughs> Please let's stop invoking the quote, writer's room. There is no writer's room, which you know as well as I do. I am the writer's room. The lazy fucking assholes who are supposedly going to be my showrunners threw that responsibility on me after wasting five months of my time. If it were up to me, I've had not only fired so-and-so and so-and-so when they handed me the worst three-episode script imaginable, I'd have hunted them down and fucking killed them with a brick, <laughs> then gone and burned down their homes. I haven't even spoken to these worthless, talented, hack sons of bitches since their third draft was phoned in after five months of all their big talk and promises that they dig deep and have my back covered. They didn't have my back. They rammed knives into it. I mean, can I go on? I will. This is my favorite. Um, my favorite is, this is an email that he sent on June 13th, 2011 at 7.18 p.m. I give you the time because 7.18 p.m. isn't really that late. Like, sometimes you write some crazy-ass emails because, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and it's really dark and it's quiet and you don't have anyone around who you can say, like, hey, should I send this email? But at 7.18, people are around. Um, this is what he sent. I am profoundly let down by some of this footage. I'm boiling mad. All caps. You need to pay attention to the motherfucking script. I even choose my goddamn commas for a reason. <laughs> commas! He's writing about commas. I even choose my goddamn commas for a reason. Why am I working so fucking hard if you're shooting everything some other way that doesn't work? Commas. This man at 7.18 p.m. is screaming over email at people about commas. Well, what this reads like is that he's looking at the footage that comes in, the dailies, and somebody, some actor, is saying the words wrong, right? Like they're running the words together, running the lines together. And look, I'll say it, commas are important. They mean things. But here's what's hysterical about that. That means that Frank Darabont is not on set. That means that there's no writer there to 
police what's being said. Do you know what that tells me? Frank Darabont, by this point, is not allowed on the set because that's the only reason that that's not getting corrected in the moment. Another reason why he wasn't allowed back on set is that he was going around accusing people he was working with with having a stroke. (laughs) I was going to go to the same one. Right? So... This is great. This is so great. I am going to read it. I hope, Duanna, you give me notes. But here's another one of his emails that I would like to stress again that he writes to several people. Like many people are copied on these notes, okay? So he's writing about uh, a director. Her name is Gwyneth Horder-Payton. Sarah has written about her before. And so he's, he's saying to Denise, he's writing this to Denise and, us, and some other people, Denise, I'm putting my anger and disappointment at Gwyneth aside when I say this. I promise I'm not being hyperbolic. And then <laughs> he goes on to say, remember our experience with Alan Garfield on The Majestic? We were all so shocked because it was like he had no grasp of the basics of his craft. And it turned out later that he'd had a stroke he was unaware of. And a few months after we wrapped, the massive secondary stroke happened that put him permanently in the hospital. I'm honest to God wondering if Gwyneth hasn't experienced the same thing. (laughs) That's how fundamentally fucked this footage is. It's as if she's totally lost her grasp of what to do. It's like we yanked some kid with no experience out of high school and put her in charge of directing a show. He basically said... Hey, one other guy I've had experience with had a stroke, and she must be having a stroke because she sucks. He's out of his mind, Gallagher. It's so glorious because of how offensive it is. Like, that is some epic shade that you have there. As you pointed out, like, to give you some notes, there's an entire paragraph of rhetorical questions to guide the reader down the path where we remember an unfortunate man who had a stroke without anybody noticing. Uh, And then we're going to use that to eviscerate the director in question. (laughs) And, you know, you might think that, oh, maybe he had a, a vendetta against this person or that one, right? That despite him saying, oh, it's not about Gwyneth, Uh, that it was, in fact, or that he didn't like such and such, those showrunners that I mentioned. But in fact, it is universal. Please, uh, please let me read a segment from... There are many, many emails, and Variety, uh, which has provided links to all of these, uh, pulled out a few to be highlighted, but here's one from The Chaff that I really enjoy. Uh, So he's drawing everyone's attention to uh, a particular take on a particular camera. And it reads, did a cam have an epileptic seizure? This footage (laughs) exhibits no instinct at all. Watch the second half of this take where we may have gotten some sort of usable footage of zombies approaching, though with far too few zombie extras in frame, which I warned against, but which yields not one usable moment because the operator is whipping the frame around and snap zooming all over the place. Utterly demented and unusable shit. That operator is no longer allowed to touch his zoom since he doesn't know how to do it. I want you to tell him I said so. Bracket. And Gwyneth, when I said try a few snap zooms, I meant carefully chosen one. Maybe three in the episode, not 12 in one take. Close bracket. <laughs> one note about one take. Um, in his defense, Kurt Sutter, Sons of Anarchy, has tweeted 
that this was a cunt move on AMC's part to release these emails. As I mentioned earlier, this is all part of a bigger lawsuit and, you know, Darabont is fighting AMC and it's going back and forth. Well, basically, Darabont says that he was uh, unfairly removed uh, and, you know, that that he is entitled to profits and blah, 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 because of it was his show. That's right. And so Kurt Sutter, who is the showrunner for Sons of Anarchy, has tweeted that abuse is indefensible, but having penned my share of deadly missives, AMC basically releasing uh, these messages with no context hurts all parties. Okay, yes. I don't imagine that Darabont and AMC are going to patch this up, like when somebody basically publishes your diary. But this is dirty fighting on all sides. They're trying to explain the mental capacity of the person against whom they are litigating, right? Like, this is not okay. We're laughing and killing ourselves, and I'm going to read these to myself like a bedtime story. (laughs) (laughs) What, the part about throwing a fucking brick? (laughs) (laughs) But AMC actually has to protect... At a certain point, even though everybody working on these shows are contractors, they can't subject people to this kind of abuse constantly, especially because it seems indiscriminate. What kills me is that in the responding affidavit in the lawsuit, this is Frank Darabont's response to the content of the emails. Uh, He says they were sent, quote, During an intense and stressful two-year period of work, during which I was fighting like a mother lion to protect the show from harm. I should say that because of what we had just read, I initially read that line as in which I was fighting like a mother lion, like that was a new curse. And then he goes on, each of these emails was sent because a, quote, professional showed up whose laziness, indifference, or incompetence threatened (laughs) to sink the ship of production and added unfair and unnecessary burden to their colleagues in the cast and crew, Darabont wrote. My tone was the result of the stress and magnitude of this extraordinary crisis. The language and hyperbole of my emails were harsh, but so were the circumstances. As for the enormous problems they describe, I stand by these emails to the last detail. Clearly, because even in the lawsuit language, he's being crazy. (laughs) It's so amazing to go, basically, I was forced to be a crazy asshole because of how incompetent all of these people are. Like, again... The Walking Dead was the biggest show on AMC. It had a big budget. It was, if not, if they didn't know it was a big hit, it was on its way to be a big hit. Do you not think that these were perhaps the most skilled people of their generation? Do you not think that there were perhaps many people who knew what they were doing on this team? Frank Darabont does not agree with you. <laughs> I I will say that I think we've all had moments at work when you wish you had the freedom where you could just throw it all away, that abandon to actually write an email to somebody who's fucked you over or you're disappointed with and just said to them, I want to throw a brick at you (laughs) or have you had a stroke or whatever. Um, Most of us are able to practice some restraint. This is next level. Like there's something, I don't want to say the word admire, but, you know, I think we've all had that, like, ah, uh, fantasy. And this guy just went and did it. <laughs> but, but he does it all the time. It's like he 
it's like there's no other way in which he operates. Like, this is how he communicates, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at his history right now, and I mean, I don't want to stereotype, but like, uh, and I'll I'll probably get in trouble for it. But he's French. Is there anything like the passion and the like, the drama, the theatrics? Is there is there anything cultural we can apply to this? Do you remember one day? Was it, I was it with you? We were in France. We were in Paris, and we were on a bus or something because we were on some junket. And we were being driven around from like one location to the other. And there were two, there were like two young lovers standing on the sidewalk having like a classic French argument. Oh, they were. Do you remember? And it was like, listen, we see young couples have fights at the McDonald's or whatever all the time. But the French way of doing it was literally that sketch on Saturday Night Live, Les Jeans de Paris, Les right, Jeans right, de Paris, right. where it was like they they had choreographed dance moves and at one point like she put her hand to her temple and fell backwards and slid down the banister and crumpled into a heap and he threw himself down onto his knees and like embraced her and they cried. Do you remember we looked out the window and we didn't want the bus to keep going? Oh yeah, she was wearing a very artistic architectural scarf and <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah, and a, a haircut that should have been offensive but was actually amazing. Right. But the key there, which I know you know, is we didn't want the bus to pull away because this is all happening in real time, right? Right. This is what kills me. This is somebody who was thinking and typing and writes all of this down and then goes, no, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to send. Please allow me to throw a brick. I wanted just one more tiny paragraph just to explain what we're talking about. Uh, he's still on the camera operators here in this <laughs> next segment and uh, complain. Are the operators literally not looking through the viewfinders? Two lines, space, to give us a new paragraph because this is nothing if not artistic, these emails. Another example, Andy tumbling down the slope. The camera misses him completely b- below frame, yet I hear the operator say, Wow, that was fantastic. Bracket words to that effect. Because, of course, we wouldn't want to malign the cameraman for not saying the right thing, right? Then, fantastic? Really? You missed the fucking actor, you blind fucking moron. (laughs) Then he goes on to criticize another camera op. Both times his bike rolls back and his face is completely blocked by the RV's window frame for his line. Yet the operator doesn't say, we need another one where the bike doesn't roll because I'm not seeing his face. No, the idiot apparently thinks he's fine. This take is printed and we move on. Add this to your expanding list of reshoots for this episode. Is there anything or anyone who would not escape his his poison keyboard? No, and... What is striking here, too, is that every time he's freaking out, he's punching down. I mean, as the showrunner, he's always going to be punching down, and I get it. I get it. And yet, at the same time, I think that's why I find it so offensive, is that you want to tell someone that you're going to throw a fucking brick at them. You know, I would prefer if I was reading these emails, I might feel a little differently if he was yelling at a network executive or if he was yelling at a network executive about the incompetence of another network executive. But all of this is these people are paid often on like scale or whatever you call it, right? Like a fee, like a standard. There's no, I mean, camera operators and the C-cam and whatever. Like these are not people who, 
These are people who actually need that day's rate to be able to take home and feed their kids. No? Well, okay, if we're getting real about this, like if you are a cam on The Walking Dead, you are doing quite well. You're in the union. You have a day rate that is, you're right, a day rate, but a nice day rate. Um, But that, to the other point there, like this is not a kid from high school who's being screamed at here. It's probably a very highly paid, skilled technician. It is punching down in that way. But at the same time, you're also criticizing an expert in his craft. Go out there yourself, dude, and operate a goddamn focus pull. And let's see what happens. You tell us what f-stop we should be on. That's the part that is so hilarious and so tragic is, are you perfect? Are there parts of your job that you do not do perfectly? Because implying that everybody else is what's making the show so bad is where the real problem here is, right? As you point yes. out, he takes nothing on himself. No, but by and large, ACAM is going to go, usually in these situations, before the showrunner is going to go. Oh, 100%. Yes, right? that is very clear. Yes. And when I read emails like this, and when I think about this situation, I can't help but go back to someone like Catherine Hardwick, who has told a very famous story about the fact that she has seen directors and showrunners and male... Uh, male seniors on a set behave with such abandoned abuse that she can't believe it when she lost a job or she was complained about because she took 10, 15 minutes on a movie set, Twilight, to go stand behind a tree and have a moment of crying by herself. Yeah, of course, because you have Catherine Hardwick, damned for not screaming. You have Teresa Rebeck, uh, who was the showrunner of Smash, who by all accounts was a bit tyrannical, if maybe not loud in volume. And she also was maligned for that. So, you know, there's always a way to blame women for not being men, uh, as opposed to us sitting here and cackling. over Frank Darabont, and even now, your dog Elvis is stealing my thunder. I am trying to talk here, and Elvis is inserting himself and taking away a woman's voice as he drinks his water noisily. We're Let's sorry. listen. Yes. Are you fucking done? And of course, of course, we have to bring up here that he did get fired. So when we're bringing up Rebecca and we're bringing up Hardwick, he did get fired. I guess what our point is, is the breaking point for uh, Catherine Hardwick to get fired was one 15-minute cry behind a tree that affected no one. And we have literally like a tome of emails of this nature. Yeah. And he allegedly, if my facts are correct... Uh, he rejected three different showrunners who could help him get out from under the massive production onslaught that he was under, but partially because he was unhappy with everything and screaming at everybody, right? So not only was he mostly excused for all these instances, but they tried to help him. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and defend network interference because... Uh, that's 78 podcasts on its own to discuss. 
But yeah, they definitely said, okay, that person's not the one. Try this one. Oh, okay, that person's not the one. How about this one? He could not be made happy. But God, they tried. That's a long rope. And I feel like it's a way longer rope than a lot of other people would have gotten. A lot of other people. And, you know, yeah, we sit here and there's only so many ways that you can go. These are incredible before you go, oh, but I don't, I wouldn't want to be there. Like it becomes so much yelling. And luckily, I think there is a bit of a sentiment that this is not the way any longer. Frank Darabont is a person of a certain age. There is a sort of an idea that this was acceptable in creatives. As you say, you've decided to put it on, you know, uh, a certain, a certain country, a certain attitude, uh, <laughs> but that that is no longer acceptable. I think we do know that there are more and more people who are like, no, that's not the way I want to, I want to live or work or working in the glamorous world of Hollywood is not worth being screamed at and having somebody say to you, fuck you all for giving me chest pains because of the <laughs> staggering fucking incompetence, blindness to the important beats and the beyond arrogant lack of regard for what is written being exhibited on set every day. <laughs> anyway, enjoy those emails. For those of you who haven't already, I promise you, you will get as much pleasure out of them as we did. And I should say, if you're going to quit your job, if you're going to go out in a blaze of glory, do consider having Frank Darabont ghostwrite some of your fuck you and goodbye emails. I don't think you'll be sorry in that regard. That might be a new career for him. Um, okay, we have come to the part of the podcast that we like to call Do We Need to Care About? And this is a bit of a new one for us because when I floated this idea as a do we need to care about, you had a resounding yes. And I think it will become apparent that I did not expect that to be the case because this week's do we need to care about is a musical. Yes. And it's not just a musical, but it's a podcast musical. Right. So this is amazing. This is fantastic and cool and all of these things. Uh, I received an email from a friend, Hi P, who pointed out to me that there's a new musical that's being published in podcast form, and it's called 36 Questions, uh, starring Jonathan Groff. And so this is a musical that is, for the very first time, going to be heard via podcast. You cannot buy the soundtrack and catch up. You cannot Spotify it. You have to wait for them to publish it each week and hear the acts. And so you had a number of questions about this. Well, I'll tell you why. When you sent to me this, um, this story, one of the reasons why I was interested is 36 questions itself. 36 questions originated, well, in its current form, by Mandy Lencatron, and Mandy Lencatron uh, is uh, from Vancouver, British Columbia. Oh, which I didn't is, know that, really? Yeah, oh. and so shout out to my former home. Yasik and I lived there for a long time, and she also was a, a part of UBC, the University of British Columbia, where I used to work, 
Um, what she, is she? She's a sociologist? Uh, or? Uh, uh, she is a creative writing instructor. Okay. And so in um, 2015, uh, I think it was 2015, a couple years ago, she wrote an article, um, she wrote an article in the New York Times about um, this sort of, the, the hypothesis was based on another researcher's work, which is that there is a list of 36 questions that will help you fall in love with anyone. So essentially this was relationship-based, that you have to do away with the notion of there is a one for you and that you can literally sit down with just about anyone. Like, I mean, look, like not anyone, but you can sit down with people um, that you otherwise wouldn't think you could fall in love with. And by the time you finish asking these 36 questions, you may be on your way to being in love. Basically, you can fall in love with a stranger if you stare at them. I remember eye contact being really interesting, right? Really a big part of this deployment. Uh, You're looking so intensely into my eyes right now. (laughs) And that if you look into somebody's eyes as you ask and answer these 36 questions, that yeah, knowing nothing about somebody, you can fall in love with them. That's right. And then these 36 questions, of course, it's almost a speed track to real communication and getting to know somebody. Um, and it's a fun exercise, actually. We we did it on the social. Uh, we talked about it. And it's a fun exercise in the sense of even if you're already in a relationship, it could be a way to renew that relationship. Anyway, so that was the first reason. Right. And just before we move on, I just want to sort of skate by a couple of the questions in case you're like, what are we talking about? Questions include, when did you last sing to yourself? to someone else. I mean, I could talk for hours on that topic, but there's also questions like, name three things you and your partner appear to have in common, where your partner is this person you're getting to know. Yeah. So anyway, I I knew a little bit about this, this, this concept, and then I saw that this concept um, has apparently, well, first of all, it's been turned into a book too, but also... It's now, I guess, due being turned into a musical podcast, which again, like totally blows my mind. Like I know what a musical is when it's on stage, but radio or the podcast medium, the sound medium, it's totally different. So how is this going to work? So the podcast, as we discussed, is going to be released weekly or periodically. It's the way that any of podcasts that you enjoy is released, including this one. Hi, how are you? And of course, in this case, it's going to be released in three acts. So one assumes there's going to be cliffhangers at the end of each act, right? Act one, act two, act three, you don't know what's going to happen next, which is really, really great. So you're waiting to hear what happens. You'll be able to listen several times before you move on to the next act of the musical. Make sense? Yes. The musical itself is, I suspect, largely what we call sung through, which means that there's not, some musicals are all music and songs. Hamilton is an example. There are no lines in Hamilton that are just spoken. There are no scenes between the songs, right? The songs are knitted together to tell the story seamlessly. Right. There are other musicals in which there are scenes. But one of the reasons that I suspect this is entirely sung through is because when it's all sung through and the songs are what you need, you don't need the stage 
to tell you things that you don't know, right? Got it. If we're watching a scene between the two of us and you're just listening, you might not know if we're sitting at the table or whatever, lying on the floor or whatnot. If I'm singing, lie down in the bed with me, my dear, I'm really sorry, everybody, for what just happened, then you kind of get the idea of what's going on. Yeah. Okay. So they're recording it and then releasing it act by act. Right. And so it's a serialized thing then too. So it's not just a musical as we know it because typically when we enjoy a musical, everything happens in front of us on that night. You get there, you sit in your seat, it's 8 o'clock, intermission's around 9.30, then it like goes from after intermission, you're out of there by 11, you know the whole story. Right. So it's a little bit of the old school, the way, the like the reason why podcasts have had such a revival in that sense, serial… and many of the other podcasts of, of, of that nature, sure. so to speak, is that it kind of revives how literature used to be published. Um, in the days of Dickens, for example, nothing was just published in a book. Here you go. Here's the whole story. Remember, it was like every day or every week it would go into the newspaper. Yeah, sure. Or to give a slightly more recent example… Harken back to, oh, five years ago or more when you had to wait for a new episode of your show every week. Oh, yeah, that. (laughs) As we speak, the first episode of Game of Thrones has aired, uh, and so everybody is now talking breathlessly, achingly for the next week. Uh, And so kind of creating that suspense also means that in that week, in the time before the next episode is released, or in this case, before act two of the musical is released, that you have that time to talk with each other about things and kind of go, oh, did you like it? I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? What's this? What's that? Interestingly, somebody brought up something uh, this week that is not dissimilar to this podcast concept, and that's Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Do you know what this is? Does that mean anything to you? I know Nathan Fillion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's one of those, the whole Firefly family. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Those people? Uh, (sighs) Right? It's Joss Whedon. Yeah, that whole thing. Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog uh, was a three-part kind of mini musical, original musical, starring Neil Patrick Harris and written by Joss Whedon. And it was issued straight to iTunes in three parts. It was revolutionary at the time because who's going to do that? Who's going to pay for three different episodes of television to get these three things? Of course, everybody did. Of course, it was a resounding success and nobody knew what it was or what it was going to be, which is what this is. It's something that is totally unusual, but you're like, I'm going to come see it. I'm going to see what's up about it. If you are not sure whether you want to listen to a musical without knowing what it looks like or what it could be like, I am sorry, but I have to once again invoke. I was wondering when Hamilton was going to come up. I'm actually not going to invoke Hamilton. What? What I am going to invoke is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Well, same thing. It's not, though, because, wait for it, that was a Hamilton reference. Uh, A few years ago, This American Life, which is a podcast that I love, you love, everybody loves, uh, did an episode entitled, if I remember correctly, The Invisible Made Visible. And so they 
had uh, a live studio audience watch the podcast being performed. But of course, a podcast is an audio format. And Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote a 15-minute musical in that episode, which I adore. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but one of my favorite lines is, everybody's got a cousin who can hook him up with something. Uh, It takes place in a high school. There's a narc. It's very entertaining. But you don't need to be seeing anything to understand what's going on. You can follow the story exactly without seeing anyone or knowing what anybody looks like. Uh, So that is a great appetizer for 36 questions for you to trust that you can follow the songs and the action without actually seeing what's happening. Well, but I mean, I I still, I go back to Hamilton because the reason I thought you were going to go there is you, for example, um, are very unique. However, in one respect, you are not in that… <laughs> in only one respect, I'm not unique. <laughs> in this respect that I'm about to mention is that you, like many other Hamilton fans, memorized the soundtrack backwards and forwards before you even saw it. In fact, years before you even saw it. Two years, probably. Up, about that, I would say. Yeah, uh, certainly a year and a half. And in fact, still people out there who are listening probably who still haven't seen Hamilton because tickets are very hard to come by. And right now it's only in Chicago and New York. So it's not like, my point is, is that um, only a small percentage or a certain percentage of Hamilton fans have actually seen Hamilton. That's right. As touring productions begin, it is becoming a little, little bit more accessible. There's a production in Chicago. There are productions starting in Los Angeles and in London. Uh, but yes, there are a tiny, tiny proportion of fans who have seen it. Yes. So I think that if we're going to cite the biggest example and the most well-known example of getting an appetite and being used to this kind of thing that 36 Questions is doing is the fact that Hamilton, the most successful show in Broadway history, um, is one of those shows where people actually learn it and memorize it and know it backwards and forwards in audio form before visually even appreciating it. Certainly that was your example and it definitely was mine. Yeah, absolutely. It is, and it's made possible. You know, it is a show that is, it's about the audio. It's about the wordplay. It's about the jokes and things. And that's probably a sign of the times because if we want to talk about musical history, which I know you do. uh, But, you know, it used to be, like, remember when your mom went to Phantom of the Opera and it's all about the the chandelier that crashes on the stage or Miss Saigon had like, and they land a real helicopter in the theater. That was the entire pitch for Miss Saigon for like a year and a half. Everybody's like, there's a helicopter. That's not what this is about. Hamilton is not visually revolutionary. uh, And 36 Questions is by definition not visually revolutionary. It's about the words. It's about what you're listening to. And it's probably about the fact that we listen now in a different way. We listen intimately with the voices directly, like physically nestled in your ears with your earbuds. If you still haven't lost one, I need to get some earbuds. But I think that's what allows it to be the kind of thing that you can learn and be inside and know backwards and forwards before ever having seen a thing or without needing to have seen a thing. So we do care about 36 questions. Very much so. If you are interested in the uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda 
little mini musical that I mentioned on This American Life. It's actually called 21 Chump Street, the musical. It's from the radio drama episode, and we will put the link up to that as well. And of course, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jonathan Groff are already connected because of Hamilton. And when you say that, um, well, I mean, obviously my favorite Jonathan Groff anecdote has to do with Hamilton and… When oh, you, I know where this is yes. going. But when you say that uh, Hamilton is not one of those helicopter shows, I will say to you that definitely, obviously, everybody's going to say and know and agree that listening to it and then seeing it is an entirely different level, right? But one of the things that seeing it really changed for me was and is, I hope this isn't a spoiler, the turntable. Right, 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 right. Sure. Um. Hamilton's stage is one of the key, maybe the key element of the Hamilton stage. Yeah, it's it's what, yeah, absolutely. Is I that mean, in the middle, there's a turntable, like a lazy Susan. There's actually, not to actually mansplain to you, yeah. but there's actually a double turntable. Right. And they go in opposite directions sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, Jonathan Groff played the king, um, Lin-Manuel Merda, there's the connection, and Jonathan Groff uh, was performing when Beyonce went to see Hamilton. And it's very famous, this anecdote now, yes? Yeah, although, uh, yes, go on. And uh, the night that Beyonce went to see Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted, after she had left, a series of tweets uh, describing the encounter between Jonathan Groff and Beyonce. And Beyonce walked up to Jonathan Groff and was like, hey, you played the king, right? And he said, yeah, that was me. At the time, he obviously wanted to die and go to heaven because Beyonce recognized him and was talking to him. Yes. And she told him that he was awesome, that she loved his strut and his turn so much that he was his own turntable. You know, I have to give you credit because I did not know, I, I knew the Beyonce anecdote was coming. I wasn't sure where the stage was playing in. His own turntable had not heard that part of it, famous or not. Yeah. And? She was like, you were your own turntable, and then proceeded to mimic his famous strut and move um, and said, I'm going to steal that from you, basically. Which is why the theater is glorious, because even if you know something backwards and forwards, there's always new gifts in the theater, right? Yes. When you actually go to see it. But I have to tell you something. Lin-Manuel Miranda, big fan of all kinds of, you know, campy, dorky things, things that maybe you turn up your nose at. Lin-Manuel Miranda is a, a known Buffy fan. He quotes Buffy all the time which means that he's connected to Joss Whedon. I was watching you connecting Lin-Manuel Miranda to Jonathan Groff and then connecting Jonathan Groff to Beyonce. So basically, I'd like you to know that you just drew a line between Joss Whedon and Beyonce. Right. You're welcome. Beyonce also was a source of inspiration for Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton, no? Uh, certainly. Skylar Sisters? Uh, certainly. Maybe Skylar Sisters, but he's quite, uh, he acknowledges on Genius that 
Beyonce's Countdown is an overt uh, homage that appears in the song Helpless. Well, there you go. I mean, we just <laughs> we just we just ended on Beyonce. <laughs> From Beyonce to Joss Whedon. To uh, Firefly. <laughs> what did I say? Those Firefly people. Nathan Fillion <laughs> and those Firefly people, I believe, is how you described it. Okay, before Yasek kills us, because we have talked about Hamilton for way too long. That's it for us. Thank you for listening and for working. My God, your emails have been so powerful to us, especially this week. You continue to share your stories about women and preparing um, and the 60% preparation that men put in versus the women. Um, and, and we, like, some of your stories are so heartbreaking. Some of them are uplifting. We love all of it. Please keep sending it to us. Keep them coming. Also, send us the emails of the people who flamed out in your office and sent horrifying emails on their way out the door because I know you have those saved oh, in a private yes. folder. I want those stories too. Yes, the flame out. The flame out Frank Darabont Gallagher emails, stories, share them with us. Next week, we will be back. We're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, Celine, uh, and the new freeform show, The Bold Type. Uh, so study up if you haven't. That's new for us. We're assigning homework. Homework on Show Your Work. So your homework is The Bold Type and Celine Dion. And as always, leave us uh, comments and reviews on iTunes. Check us out on Google Play. That's like extra credit. You can just do that real yeah. easy. Round notes. Till next time, work hard. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.